then do we view women who are sexual predators? When we hear about a woman grooming young boys for sex, a school teacher, for example, do people respond with the same sort of aggressive distaste uh, as they do to news of male sexual predators? And what about their victims? For example, young boys, those young boys. Do we neglect to consider their trauma as a genuine, legitimate, real trauma? And what, what impact does that have on their lives? Our special guest today is one gutsy novelist, I have to say. These are the themes uh, that she's been working with in her debut novel, Tampa. Alyssa Nutting is Assistant Professor of Creative Writing and English Literature at John Carroll University. She's the author of uh, the short story collection, Unclean Jobs for Women and Girls, and last year saw the publication of her novel, Tampa. At the heart of that is a teacher, a young woman, Celeste Price, who grooms her young male students for sex. And reviewers have called it dirty, confronting, funny, frightening, fast, a modern-day Lolita. No doubt we'll get to talk about that. Please give a warm and wonderful Sydney welcome to Alyssa Nutting. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to extend my gratitude to all of you for attending and to all the organizers and workers and volunteers whose hard work um, has made this wonderful festival possible. It's an honor to be here. I'd like to discuss three very linked themes today. Female sexual predators, violence, and power. Here's my dangerous idea, and I'll speak for my culture of America. During the q and I'd love to hear your thoughts about similarities and differences that might exist. Culturally, we are largely unable to see female predation and violence of a sexual or non-sexual nature because we exist in a culture that denies the social power of women in order to benefit men. I'd actually like to start with violence then proceed to the point where violence and sexuality intersect in predation, and being a fiction writer, talk a bit about writing as well. So how are female perpetrators of violent crimes received? As we'll come to chat about with female sexual predators, this is largely in America based on how the woman looks, how attractive she is, and how youthful. The violent dominance of, say, taking the life of another person is clearly a position of power. In our culture, the power we're comfortable giving women is appearance-based. It's a power that serves a heterosexual male patriarchy, a power that says you can do nearly anything you want as long as you're turning us on. It's a power that doesn't threaten male power and therefore isn't seen as frightening even when the women are violent, as long as they're sexually attractive. Uh, so here we have some violent female characters. You might notice some similarities. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique in X-Men, um, Scarlett Johansson as uh, Black Widow in The Avengers, Sarah Michelle Gellar as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, Lucy Lawless as Xena, Warrior Princess. I'd go so far as to say that mine is a culture so used to seeing female violence as a form of appeal to male sexuality rather than a form of power 
um, that brings this unsolicited interpretation to the work. Uh, here's just an example. I recently wrote a fictional story about two young sisters, one of whom tortures the other by making her binge eat, wet her pants, and a variety of other torments. I was pleased with how disturbing the story turned out to be. So pleased that I actually managed to feel surprised at the first comment that appeared when the magazine posted it online. This gave me the weirdest boner. <laughs> A user stated. Um, and, and just to be clear, I'm not against weird boners <laughs> per se. But it interested me that gendered social context gave my story a fetish value I had not realized that it had. But after all, how are young women in underwear normally presented in our culture? They're the sexual object and we the voyeur. They're presented as boner material. And apparently, if there's forced eating and bladder incontinence issues involved as well, then they're subcategorized as weird boner material. <laughs> this is an intrinsic part of violent female characters in my culture, the boner factor. We like our violent women to be svelte, lipstick-wearing boner givers. We like them to exist in the realm of fantasy or fantastic scenarios as genetically modified government assassins or the like. Sure, they have the power to kill, but it isn't seen as power, but rather an extension of their objectification. They're wild, untamed boner givers or weird ones. It's a juxtaposition of novelty to pair a mini skirt with a gun. Um, here we have a doll um, of the TV show uh, Alias's character, Sydney Barstow, played by Jennifer Garner. Um, so you see that her, her doll is dressed, um, sort of, and it, it comes with a gun. If a female character obeys the primary social rule of looking sexually attractive to men, then her violent behavior is fetishized declawed as a turn-on rather than a scare, and it finds social approval. She can be an anti-hero. If a violent female character is not sexually attractive to men, then she's a monster, and it's assumed it's just a matter of time before she's destroyed in the plot. The word monster often comes up in conjunction with serial killers, male and female, so I think it's fruitful to look now at a few pop culture representations of serial killers, male and female. Uh, the film about female serial killer Eileen Warnos was actually titled Monster. Charlize Theron, the very attractive actress who portrayed the real-life woman, wore facial prosthetics when portraying her. I'd argue, in order to avoid the sexual objectification of her character. The social message here, I think, is that a real-life, non-fantasy female serial killer must be unattractive and therefore unacceptable, or vice versa. It seems to me that when men are attractive and violent, their social power is doubled. When women are attractive and violent, or just attractive, 
Their social power is subverted to objectification. They're interpreted as existing for the pleasure of men. Uh, so here we have the attractive actor, Michael C. Hall, um, who portrayed a serial killer, uh, a fictional one, but he certainly didn't wear facial prosthetics or unflattering makeup when he played his character of Dexter. Twice that I'm aware of on the show, he encountered women willing to kill with him, both of whom were quite attractive. Actress Julia Stiles, who played the character Lumen Pierce, um, she's on the left, uh, and actress Yvonne Stravosky, who played Hannah McKay. Here's the difference between them and Dexter. Their monstrous lifestyle did not last. Um, so in the first case, Julia Stiles' character, Lumen, she wanted to get revenge on her former attackers. When she did, she no longer felt any need for violence, and she left Dexter. The second, Stravosky's character, Hannah McKay, went from being a murderer to being a mother. At the end of the show, um, and this is a spoiler alert, so maybe cover your ears and hum if you haven't, haven't seen the end and might want to, she takes on Dexter's son as her own and creates a new life raising him, while Dexter fakes his death to go on living the solitary life of a killer, free of the complication of child rearing. Let's try to imagine the wildly successful Showtime drama being about an attractive female serial killer instead of a male one. Would it work? I'd argue it wouldn't. The female character would likely be attacked for being cold, non-relatable, called crazy and psychotic, but not in the way that would cause her to become a beloved anti-hero like Dexter. It's perhaps also worth bringing up the attractive male serial killer protagonist in American Psycho, played in the movie adaptation of the book by Christian Bale. His character wasn't sympathetic like Dexter's, but he still enjoyed a lead role of protagonist. What message can we take from the fact that in both cases of attractive female killers involved with Dexter on the show, their violence was eventually diffused? That the power of inspiring fear belongs only to men, attractive or not. But attractive women aren't truly dangerous. They just need to get it out of their system or get a child to take care of. <laughs> it doesn't even matter if it's their own. <laughs> then they'll become normal. It's hard for society to conceive of female violence. Even the word monster, when applied to a woman, doesn't usually bring with it the same violent power. She's an aberration to be destroyed rather than something to be feared or even sickly revered. So this is the landscape we're in, the lens through which violent females are received, the lens through which female sexual predators are received, and I myself will argue that sexual predation is a form of violence, which is simply the lens through which all females are socially received. As a writer, sometimes I do write with this lens in mind. In my novel Tampa, for example, I wanted to fully satirize and hyperbolize the male pornographic gaze I knew the main character would inevitably be received with. In other words, knowing the weird boners were coming, 
I wanted to make them the most uncomfortable, weirdest boners imaginable so that the element of social fetishization couldn't be ignored, couldn't not be discussed. Other times I forget the lens or attempt to forget it and write violent female characters without thinking about their inevitable reduction to weird boner material in the larger world. It feels wrong to me to put certain characters off limits in some attempt to try to fetish-proof my writing. Sometimes, certainly, I write specifically and mindfully to engage sexism, but sometimes I just write violent female characters who should be seen as frightening and powerful, and I publish them whether or not the larger world is ready to read them that way. When it comes to sexual power, the lie that female sexuality is passive and male sexuality is active is a message our patriarchal society loves to protect. It gives power to men and takes power from women. It asserts a cultural belief that women aren't able to act and properly voice their sexual desires, that it isn't a woman's place to do this. The myth of female sexual passivity instead says that women need men to activate their sexuality to interpret what it really is that women want, and then to give it to them. The myth of female sexual passivity says it's the man's job to take what he decides a woman wants to give, so any act of female sexual resistance is simply a way for men to prove how skilled and powerful they are. Following this logic, some women are so resistant to admitting what they want sexually that they continue to protest even during the act. We see the label of phony towards words like no, don't, stop. We see arguing against it with phrases like quit it, I'm serious, as a denial of secret wishes. But the myth of female sexual passivity lets men know that women could never actually mean that. Men are here to free our sexual desire that's trapped inside. True, some ungrateful females fail to thank their emancipators with the proper level of praise. They're so used to faking the role of unwilling participant, they use words like force and rape. A cultural sexual binary that gives agency to men and strips it from women results in phrases like, I could tell she wanted it, incited evidence like the outfit the woman was wearing, whether or not she smiled or spoke to the man, whether or not she'd previously had sexual encounters. Society and popular culture say lots of conflicting things about female sexuality, but all of them prioritize men and male power. The basic social message to women is this. If you say no, you won't be believed. If you say yes, you won't be respected. Make no mistake, the myth of female sexual passivity has dangerous and violent consequences for women. It always has, and they continue to thrive today. So what happens when women try to adopt positions of sexual agency? I want to quickly contrast a few images from different highly sexual hit music videos. 
Here's one with a male singer and two male cameo singers. Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines featuring Pharrell and T.I. Perhaps you'll notice that all the men are clothed and all the women aren't. But he's the lead singer. He's the one in power. Here's an image from Miley Cyrus's video, We Can't Stop. Throughout, she's nearly nude. The men in her video are fully clothed. Here's the Big Sean video, Dance, featuring Nicki Minaj. He's fully clothed and he has a coat on. <laughs> She's scantily clad, shaking her butt and bending over in front of him. Now, would the favor be reversed? Would he agree to be featured in one of her videos, wearing short shorts and shaking his aunt ass against her? I, I don't think so. Female sexuality gets portrayed as having the primary purpose of being a display for men to enjoy, but it doesn't go both ways. The victims of this setup, however, aren't exclusively female. A system that states women cannot express their sexuality unless a man is showing them how, that men are the givers and women the receivers, also negates the possibility that men can be victims of sexual violence at the hands of women. What happens when a male utters the words, a woman raped me? He can be laughed at, teased, not taken seriously. After all, if female sexuality simply exists for men to enjoy, how could he not have enjoyed it? How could she have allowed herself to do something sexual unless he was convincing her that she wanted to? Likewise, when a female teacher commits an act of statutory rape with a male student, society has a hard time accepting this as a crime. We're told that men are always the ones in control of sexual encounters with women. And we find this assumption difficult to challenge, even when she committed the illegal act with a minor. In news articles describing the sexual acts of adult female teachers and their underage male students, the language of victimization often skews to the adult female rather than the underage male, who isn't seen as a victim at all, but as a lucky boy. We're told details about the boy's delinquency, how he was a problem child, how he pursued the teacher rather than vice versa, how he brought alcohol to the teacher's home and got her intoxicated. We're told that he doesn't feel he was victimized, that he wanted to do it. We're told to use his sexual desire to negate his victimhood, but desire and consent, particularly with youth who are underage and cannot legally consent, aren't the same thing. There are plenty of things that teenagers and adolescents might like to do, might think to be a good idea, that we as adults realize aren't actually a good idea and pass laws to help protect them. But in these scenarios, we fail our teenage boys miserably. Instead, the details that get discussed in these cases give us reasons to feel sorry for the teacher and understand why she herself is a victim. We learn about problems in her marriage, her emotionally unavailable husband, her recent divorce following a husband's affair. 
or we learn about traumatic events that occurred in her childhood. We hear her say she's sorry, and we're told to find this apology adequate, to call things fair and square. After all, she's a woman, and the underage male student wanted to have sex with her. We're asked if a crime even occurred. Instead of talking about what happened, we talk about why it happened. What events in the adult female's life victimized her and led to this behavior? We don't do this when a male teacher sleeps with an underage female student. We don't care if he currently felt unloved in his marriage or if something untoward happened to him when he was a teenager. We understand him as an agent of sexual power. But when asked to see women this way, the American media falls terribly short. What social messages are sent to teenage boys about sex? If a teenage boy gets hit on by his adult female teacher, what does he feel like saying no might imply about him? What social benefits or peer compliments might he feel like he'll get if he says yes? And the female teacher, what social messages has she received? I'd argue she feels it probably isn't really a crime. Certainly, it isn't an act of sexual violence. She's told he'll feel lucky, special, grateful. She's told it can't be a harmful experience for him. One late-night talk show host in America told a joke about a student who slept with his female teacher. He said he passed away from being high-fived to death by his peers. I'm not a psychologist, but I do think it's safe to say, sexual development issues aside, that at the very least, we owe it to teenagers of any gender to know that they're safe with adults of authority, a safety that means they know what to expect from them, that they won't be asked by these adults to participate in acts that can have lifelong consequences for both parties, to say nothing of the complex emotional and boundary issues such an experience might lead to. We're so quick to dismiss female power, including female sexual power, that we readily see the female teacher as being bullied, coerced, or seduced by the underage male student, despite the fact that she's an adult and an authority figure in the classroom. Singer, actress, and former Miss America, Vanessa Williams recently came forward to say she was sexually molested by an 18-year-old female when she was 10 years old. What I felt when I heard her story was complicated. It certainly wasn't disbelief because I immediately believed her. It was instead a sense of me becoming aware of my own bias. It was not the story I expected when I saw a headline that she'd suffered sexual abuse as a child. I immediately assumed the predator was male. These abuses of female to female victim absolutely happen, though I feel like I rarely hear them reported in the media. But these narratives don't support the myth of female sexual passivity. No male was present at all, but sexual violence occurred. I would argue that for us to properly acknowledge the sexual predation that occurs at the hands of women, 
a larger stride toward sexual equality is still needed. We need to see female sexuality as a powerful force, one that's independent of male sexuality, one that can serve its own desires, even wrongfully, even violently. And we need to expand our definition of sexual violence beyond acts, including physical force. It is violent to have sex with someone who cannot legally consent whether or not physical force is involved. And it is violent to have sex with any adult who does not explicitly say yes. Physical signs of arousal do not equal consent. Silence does not equal consent. Stillness does not equal consent. Until we culturally imbue women's sexuality with the full independence and power that male sexuality enjoys, female sexual predators will continue to enjoy a reprehensible measure of cultural safety, and particularly in the case of female teachers whose victims are underage males, a measure of cultural approval. Thanks. I wonder if we could have the house lights up a little. Is that possible? Just so we can see you all and mm -hmm. let's feel blinded by the spotlight. <laughs> what a fantastic presentation. Wouldn't you agree? So many subtleties there to, to explore together and with you too. So we look forward to coming to you for questions. And if we could have those house lights up just a bit and the spotlights down just a bit, that'd be really great so we can see you. Is that possible? Oh, great, thanks. Um, Let's then use this opportunity before we come to the room to explore this character that you created in Tampa, this mm -hmm. novel of yours, Celeste Price. Where did she come from in your imagining? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I sort of took a, a two-part approach. On one hand, I was looking at sort of the cultural messages that, that women are sent. Um, you know, so you, you talked a, a bit in, in the introduction, you know, very, um, you know, about sort of the the complication, you know, the of, of the messages that I think we send right to adolescent girls about, you know, you should be sexual, you know, you should be mm. sexually, you know, uh, revealing, right, in your clothing, and then also these messages of, you know, it's wrong to be sexually, you know, revealing, it's wrong to, you know, commit sexual acts, um, you know, and, and and just sort of the impossibility of these messages, you know. So I, I mean, I, I wanted to sort of make a character that was kind of this national fetish um, when, whenever these cases come up um, in the stage, which is so frequently. Um, it's always a media circus. Um, the woman kind of becomes an instant celebrity. Um, and there really sort of seems to be, you know, this great air of approval. And the more beautiful she is, right, um, the more debate there is about, you know, whether or not a crime even occurred, right? When she's very attractive and they, you know, have the open calls on the news programs or, you know, the phone's just ringing off the hook saying, I wish my teacher had seduced me. 
you know, like, I wish I had been a boy in her classroom, you know, and, and gotten to have sex with her. Um, you know, so I mean, I wanted to take sort of that, that ideal image of this extremely beautiful teacher that's only interested in sex, right? Um, and, and kind of, you know, show it uh, run amok and, and, and kind of gone uh, to, to a comical extreme, you know, so, so that we can see um, how problematic and monstrous that national fetish really is. Um, I, I also really wanted to sort of fight against, you know, the the sort of adult victimization. You know, I, I see kind of every time one of these cases come up with the ways that sort of the backgrounds of the women begin to be explored, um, the way that they themselves, you know, seem to be sort of shown or portrayed as being very lost or, you know, frightened or, um, you know, just sort of not in control um, in a way that, that sort of seems to kind of be this cultural call to say, oh, you poor dear, right? Um, and that's not to say that I, I think the question of why, you know, people do the things they do is, is not important. I think that mm. it is very important, but that's where the conversation seems to start and stop. Um, which is what I find problematic. We don't get a sense of that with your character at all, really, her <laughs> right. heritage, where this has come from. No. This, this is just her targeting a boy mm -hmm. and then a second boy, mm -hmm. but a boy, mm -hmm. Jack, mm -hmm. and being very clear in her mind what she wants to achieve. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, so I, I wanted it to be all of the things that I feel like these national portrayals are not, you know, so often they're very comfortable showing, you know, the female as being very in love, right, or romantic, and that's kind of socially accepted because it's safe. It's not socially accepted, her, you know, for the teacher to just be like, you know, oh, I'm, a, you know, I, I'm so horny and raunchy and you can't stop me, right? I wonder what they would do if a woman just grabbed a microphone, you know, from the reporter after one of these cases and said, I'm so horny and raunchy and you can't stop me. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's not what happens, right? Instead, you know, she's crying. She's talking about her failed marriage or she's talking about how in love, you know, she was. So I really wanted to, um, you know, to just, just make this, you know, extremely obscene book, you know, about this unrepentant, character, you know, I mean, who is just comically unrepentant and comically, comically horny. But comically. This mm. is so interesting that people mm. have described this as abhorrent, mm -hmm. but really laugh out loud funny. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you have to laugh. It's just, to me, it's so ridiculous. You know, I mean, these, these sort of cultural standards and the fact that, you know, if women, you know, are young and attractive and look a certain way, you know, we can sort of completely excuse this behavior um, as a society. Um, I, I, almost had, I almost had to laugh, you know, so I don't But in a way, in making it comical, mm. I must say a lot of that, it was sort of lost on me, the funny mm. bits. <laughs> Um, but in making it comical, are you, mm. in a sense, undermining your mm. own effort mm -hmm. to yeah. take this power mm -hmm. that your character Celeste has seriously? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think that if it wasn't, if it wasn't comical, right, if it wasn't a satire, 
Um, my, my choice then is to make this a you know, very realistic character portrayal, right? Um, and that what I, is what I think the media does every single time this happens, right? They take this character, they say, what are the ways we can sympathize with you, mm. right? Um, you know, what are the ways you know, that we can feel sorry for you and we can kind of you know, understand how you got to this point and we can judge you less? Um, you know, and, and I really wanted to write a satire where you judge the character more. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? You've described uh, the writing process, occupying the skin of mm. Celeste as almost an anaesthetic-like mm. experience. How? Mm. How did you occupy her to write her into being? Yeah, I mean, it... it sh- she is such an intense character, you know, and, and I mean, when you're writing a character with that much intensity, I, I think you just sort of feel a pressure, um, at least emotionally, to kind of match that tension. Um, so I'm, it was very draining, um, and it took a while, you know, to, to sort of, um, it was almost like the way you would have to warm up like a tea kettle, you know, I mean, I, w- I would have to go, you know, to being like, so horrible, you know. So I mean, after 20 minutes of writing, I'm like, oh, I'm still not horrible enough, you know. Um, 30, 40, okay, I'm starting to become a really bad person, but I, you know, I, I need to stick with it just a few more minutes, you know. So I mean, it would take a long time to really, you know, sort of like fully enter the space where I was just kind of like as, you know, I could be as sort of like wicked and mean spirited and see things through that lens of of just kind of you know judging everyone and having no sympathy, um, you know, for other adults. The must way have made home does. life really quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bother mum. She's writing. Yeah. Hide yeah. under your beds, kids. I, it's a good point because I, I, I in between, you know, kind of uh, finishing the first draft and, and the book being published, I, I had a baby. Right, that's the um, order, right. And yeah, I, I don't know if I could have done it, you know, with, um, you know, with like happy child giggles in the background. I... I I don't know that I, I could have, you know, brought that forward. Yeah. So, I'm interested in the response to the book. It's, I mean, it's been all over the place. Um, a lot of, a lot of uh, readers um, really sort of took it as more of a memoir, um, <laughs> which was interesting for me. Um, you know, they saw it if not nonfiction, you know, as, you know, a very thinly veiled uh, device, you know, for my own fantasy um, and sexual exploration. Um, and, and, you know, sent, uh, I, at one point I had my, my email address on my website, but that, that ended very quickly um, upon, upon publication. I've, I've, gotten, um, I've gotten marriage proposals from um, men in prison. Um, <laughs> Who, who opened the letter. It was actually really sweet because the, the letter opened talking about how many times he jerked off to the book um, in his prison cell. The ultimate weird boner. Yeah. But then he went on to say how um, he, he liked it beyond, you know, just jerk off material, which I think was like an attempt to, to woo my hand in I mean, in it's marriage. kind of a compliment. Yeah. You want your readers... <laughs> But you want your readers to really enjoy your book, did you? Don't you? Um, I mean, I, I will admit, I, when I was writing it, I never thought, you know, this one is for you know the men in prison who need something to jerk off to. But um, 
but you know, uh, once it's out of your hands. So, uh, um, bookshops, though, mm. including one in Sydney, I noticed, mm. um, somewhere, yeah. uh, banned, banned the book. Well, mm. I mean, that's a, a provocative way of putting mm. it. They declined mm-hmm. to stock it. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I mean, it, it interests me. Mm. Um, it interests me, you know, I mean, on, on one hand, just the fact that there's so much violence, right, separate of sexuality that, um, that we have no problem filling our shelves with. Um, you know, it, it interests me also, I mean, just in the fact that, you know, we have such access to filth in our culture currently. I mean, you can go to, you know, McDonald's and get on the free Wi-Fi and watch you porn while you're eating your cheeseburger if you really want to, you know. Um, and here you have a book that's a non-visual medium, you know, that um, you could put on what I presume would be a, a taller shelf, you know, if you were so worried about um, a completely unattended child, you know, running in and, and grabbing it. Because I know that when I was young, we liked to, um, you know, go play in bookstores um, <laughs> without our parents, you know. I, that, that never happened. I um, did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I didn't have any money as a kid, you know, so I, I always went to the bookstore with my, my mom or dad. But, what do you um, think they... What do you think... Is that what they're... Is that what those bookstores are nervous about, that children will get the book? I mean, or, or is there something else going on mm-hmm. there? No, I mean, it, it's a good question. You know, that was kind of a... I, I guess uh, one answer put forward, you know, that we're a very family-friendly bookstore. You know, we have lots of families with children coming in, and um, uh, that that was one answer. But I mean, I, I think that it does kind of speak to a larger, um, you know, very sort of interesting question. I mean, it 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 is kind of so. So, like you know, Fifty Shades, for example, right, was um, was everywhere, and and certainly this does you know in, involve um, you know predatory sex and and does involve a minor, but um, it's odd you know uh, that that there are representations of female sexuality that we have no problem with and that don't threaten us as a culture, whatever you know whatsoever. Mm-hmm. We don't find them sexually threatening, um, you know, and and then there are others that that sort of really get people up in arms, you know. Which, um, which I think, you know, means it's something to, to pay attention to. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if those same bookstores have American Psycho, for example. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, and, and at what point does a story that's pretty... I mean, I haven't been able to personally watch Dexter. I gave mm-hmm. it a go and then I mm-hmm. thought, I don't really want to watch this. <laughs> sure. I know lots of people who did. Right. I didn't understand how they could. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, had, it, it garnered cult status mm. and so did American Psycho. Sure. So... You know, at what point does that flip over? Does, mm-hmm. a, does a story about female sexual power, mm-hmm. a difficult story, mm-hmm. a dangerous story, flip over and have that same cult status? I wonder. It's a great question. Yeah, yeah. it'd be interesting to know. So, writing the boy Jack mm. um, in in creating his experience of Celeste's predation, did you do some thinking and research around? the nature of uh, the victims, the experiences of victims? Mm. Is, are there any opportunities to read testament, testimonies of um, male victims in particular, but also female victims mm-hmm. of 
Yeah, and, and I mean, as you can imagine, kind of the um, the the reports and 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 certainly the the true life narratives, you know, of um, of male victims of of female sexual predators um, are, are pretty slim. Um, that that I you know was was able to find, but because of kind of the nature of the book, you know, well, I did do some research on you know, well, you know, kind of what what do sexual predators of both genders look for, um, you know, and and sort of what um, what is kind of the the nature you know of of the victim's experience. What I was primarily interested in was you know, the social reception of these cases and the difference in the social reception between when it was a female, uh, you know, uh, victimizer and, and when it was a male. Um, and, and so I looked at, at just the reporting, you know, of, of hundreds of these cases um, and was really, you know, quite shocked at, at how predictable the differences, you know, in reporting were, um, you know, how, how the abuser, you know, kind of language almost always went to the male, whether or not the male was the adult abuser. Mm. And if you've ever spoken to uh, survivors of sexual abuse who are male adults, mm. they will talk about that. D denial of their experience as being a great source of trauma for them. Oh, a absolutely, and and you know when when the book came out, I, I got a lot of you know responses, mm. um, you know from adult men, you know just saying that you know there there has never been any place that I have felt safe to talk about this. You know if I bring it up with my friends, I think that they'll laugh at me. You know, um, or you know like wonder why, you know, and th this wasn't a universally sort of positive experience for me um, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I mean, so, so I, I think that we are, you know, very, very much silencing kind of those stories. Have you had a response from women who find your character uh, appalling from a feminist point of view? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, so I mean, I, I wanted to very kind of consciously, you know, employ this sort of pornographic language, right, that I think we tend to associate with male desire, right, rather mm -hmm. than female desire. Um, you know, and, and I wanted to do that for my own feminist purposes, um, but of course feminists get to disagree. Um, you know, so I mean, many, you know, many did kind of write to me or write about me and, and say, you know, it, it's it's always wrong to use this language, you know, and, and that's their opinion that, that I respect. But, um, but that's I, the very point you're making, isn't it? That yes. we can't talk <laughs> about women's sexual power in right. all its complexity. Right. It's got to be filtered through a particular lens. It does, it does. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you know, things are already so bad. You know, I, I just didn't see what, you know, like, like you know, so, so what if, you know, my, my book, you know, kind of <laughs> comes out and is this obscene thing? You know, is it really going to make the world more obscene? I don't think so. <laughs> um, is it really going, you know, to, to, to make, make sort of, you know, the tide for women anywhere? So. Was it intensely, uh, you did talk about the experience of writing, but were there times where you thought, what, have I, what am I creating here? It oh, was every intensely day. uncomfortable. <laughs> every day. And I mean, you know, once it was, like there, there are certain things, you know, you tell yourself when you're alone writing the book and when you don't know whether anyone will ever see, you know, the book, whether or not it will ever sell um, and ever see a readership. Um, and and it's, it's a lot easier, you know, to, to sort of comfort yourself at that stage. But then, you know, you reach a stage where you've signed contracts and things are being printed and, you 
know, pretty much no matter what you do, you know, in, in a few weeks, it's going to be on the shelves and, you know, everyone from, you know, your childhood piano teacher to, you know, your great aunt um, is going to know, you know, that you're a soulless pervert writer. Um, and I, I mean, I did, you know, and particularly kind of when, you know, when it came out, I mean, I had a three-month-old daughter, you know, um, so I, I had lots of, you know... Um, Doing book gigs anguish. with the baby on your lap. <laughs> I had lots of, you know, just anguish sessions, you know, crying sessions of, you know, have I ruined my life? Have I, you know, placed this, like, albatross yoke of shame around my daughter, you know, that is going to follow her, you know, through life forever? Um, you know, is, am I never going to be able to meet, you know, someone without them immediately, you know, like, hating me and judging me before, you know, mm. I, I, I begin talking? Um, you know, I mean, you, you have kind of all of these, these paranoias come up, and, and they still come up. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I think that that's kind of something that that every author has to go through to to some extent. You know, how how much of your identity is is this book going to inhabit? But and what about the great aunt? Oh, or the mum, or dad, or <laughs> no? They, um, I, my 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 family is so conservative, and. Um, you know, I, I, they just know that they can't read it. Like, I mean, <laughs> like it, it would literally kill my mother. And like, I don't, I, I mean that, you know, like she, she would wow. perish. Um, it's, they have like half the, I don't even think she would understand, you know, like some of it because like, I, like, I don't think she would, you know, know what some of these sexual things even are. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's hard, you know, and I mean, we just, uh, you know, when, when I call her and when we talk, you know, I mean, we, we don't talk about Work. the book or about my writing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. How interesting. Let's take some questions, shall we? Um, uh, we still can't see the audience very well. I wonder if we could have the spotlights down quite a bit dramatically more. Is that possible? Sorry to be... Um, and and the, all the room lights up much more. Is that possible? It'd be really great to see you. So, there are roving mics. Oh, are there roving mics? There are. Oh, standing mics. Oh, sorry, I would have let you know that. So, come on up to the microphones if you can. Um, don't be shy. Um, two mics. I, sh I would have given you a bit more notice, sorry. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I know they've all got questions because it's the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. They always have lots of questions or comments. Um, if you want to just publicly shame me, I would be open <laughs> to that as well. It's okay. While you're gathering <laughs> in your crowds at the mics, no, no, we need you at the mic, we really do. Sorry to do this to you, but be, be prepared to just part the crowd like a religious figure or something <laughs> and um, make your way to the mics. Everyone will accommodate you, won't you? Great, come on down. Oh, there is, sorry, yes, come to you first, thanks. Uh, hey, um, I was just kind of interested in um, what you were saying in regards to the way uh, we look at male and female perpetrators differently. Mm. Um, and I was just wondering if I get, um, what do you think uh, we should change about the way we engage with that? Should we be more understanding of male perpetrators? Should we be more judgment, you know, more judging mm. of female 
perpetrators? <laughs> yeah. Good question, thank you. Yeah, no, that is a great question. I mean, I, I really sort of think it goes back to kind of this lens um, of, of gender equality and, and social equality in society. The, the tricky thing, right, and, and the, the complex thing that kind of happens, particularly in these cases, you know, with, uh, with female teachers, you know, and, and kind of underage male students, um, the level to which, you know, I think that they truly believe, you know, that, that you know, they are kind of doing the underage student a favor um, has boggled me and... I do feel like, you know, that that is something that's, that's in the water, you know, of, of our culture. Mm. Um, you know, so I mean, that I think is a view, you know, that, that has to change. And I, I think that public acknowledgement, right, of, of, you know, kind of acts of sexual violence, you know, that, that happen um, at, at the hands of women really need more, you know, to, to sort of these narratives need to be out. They need to be in the open. Um, you know, we, we need to hear about them kind of, you know, with a frequency that, um, you know, others feel safe to come forward, that people feel like they're going to be believed, that we can understand this experience can be, you know, as traumatic. Um, as as when it's at you know the the hands of a male. So I mean I think that the social the social reception and sort of the way that that kind of we we talk about these things and you know mm. yes probably prosecute right these things um, I I think does need to shift. It's a complex kind of equality mm. that yes. you're exploring here, isn't mm -hmm. it? Thank you. Hi. Um, Hi. I was wondering, and this might be left of centre completely, but mm. Orange is the New Black. Have you yes. seen that? I'm totally addicted to the new TV series. And in my own mind, it's completely shifted the way I see um, sexuality amongst uh, women and mm. predators as well. Mm -hmm. And I just thought of it today before I came as, as offering some kind of shift within mm. the consciousness and awareness mm -hmm. in the public. It definitely is a different to the sort of twerking image of women <laughs> and sexual predators. And just for those in the audience who haven't caught yeah. it, just describe mm -hmm. the... Just give us a two-sentence synopsis. It's an in-prison uh, show, um, all women, and there's a lot of lesbian activity going on. There's a lot of predatorial activity mm -hmm. going on. And it's normalised quite... And given quite a lot of beauty as well mm. in some cases and it's it's a fascinating look at it and mm. I just wondered if you'd considered that and maybe there is some shift mm -hmm. taking place within the popular media. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, Have you seen it? I, I've seen the first season and and I... Yes, you know, I, I think that, that again, it's, it's complex. You know, I, one thing that I really like about the show, um, you know, are sort of the, the, the representations and voices, you know, that, that I think we are seeing that normally kind of we don't get to see in, in a popular hit TV show. Um, you know, but then I, I sort of have to go back to kind of this, uh, this boner factor, right, which I think also exists in the show, you know, um, because I've, I have heard, you know, on, on more than one occasion, you know, sort of... Um, People, uh, you know, male males kind of describing the show's lesbian action in in kind of terms like, you know, hell yeah, um, you know. So so that's that's still there, right? So I mean, it, it is kind of this very complicated lens of, you know, how are we, you know, how can we show, right, um, these these sort of acts um, of either, you know, sexuality that's exclusive to women or, you know, acts of of, you know 
predatory sexual violence at the hands of women. Um, you know, when culturally we're sort of trained to receive both as, as being hot in some way. And to be voyeurs of it, irrespective. So interesting, isn't it? Uh, thank you. Uh, hello, thank Hi. you, that was wonderful. Um, my question is, there's, I feel there's a stigma that um, a female who's able to write openly about her sexuality and in terms of prose and erotic fiction, that they have to have some sort of personal backstory of <laughs> sexual trauma or they're perverted mm -hmm. or... What's your take on that? Mm. Oh, yeah, you're, you're living my life the past year, <laughs> like, let me tell you. Um, yeah, mm. I mean, you know, and, and just the... It, 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 I think, came back to in a lot of, you know, the comments and, and the letters that, you know, I mean, at a certain point you stop reading them, but um, some of the ones I, I caught early on was just this extreme disbelief that I could have a sexual imagination, right? That I could write something that wasn't a personal fantasy, um, you know, and... and I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm a female writer. I, I don't know that, that men, you know, get that question. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'd have to ask a male writer, but if I had to guess, I would say they might get that less. Mm. There's something tangible here, though. You actually went to school with a woman who, whose case became notorious. Uh, in the state that this very story is set in, in Florida. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that's what really got me first interested in these cases, um, because I, I'd never really, I, I'd heard them, but I, I sort of kind of dismissed it as, because of the way they're reported, as sort of tabloid fodder, right? Um, you know, but then suddenly I turned on the TV one day and there was a woman that I, you know, recognized. I'd gone to school with her and she had slept with her 14-year-old student. Um, and she was beautiful and, I mean, she just became, you know, really nationally famous. All the national papers and news stories picked it up and she was doing interviews, you know, on all these major news shows and networks. Um, and I mean, the, the disconnect, you know, and what I expected the reception to be, you know, of any adult who sleeps with a 14-year-old student and the reception that she got um, just shocked me and really made me pay attention to all of the other cases. Um, and when I saw these patterns repeating, that's when I really started thinking There's about maybe writing. This. Yes. Yeah. Shall we, depending on the nature of the question, we might um, take a couple at a time, but I'll, I'll just make that assessment as we go. But let's, let's have a go at that. I'm too short for this. Um, <laughs> I'm studying social work at mm. uni and oh. I wrote an assignment about male victims of domestic violence for nice. two different tutors. Uh -huh. And one of them said, that's great, we should focus on this. Mm -hmm. And the other one said, rubbish, that kind of stuff doesn't happen, I don't like it. Wow. So in terms of such differing wow. opinions, I mean, focusing more on the downstream side of things, what role do you think educators and healthcare practitioners have in equalising gender norms, mm -hmm. I guess? Okay. No, that, that's a great question. And I, I mean, you know, it, it, it sort of goes back to, you know, that, that essence of, of disbelief. You know, I mean, I, I think that sort of with, with, with any trauma, but, but especially with something, you know, so vulnerable and kind of life-defining a sexual trauma, being believed, right, I mean, is, is such a huge necessity. You know, I mean, you, you need to be able to tell your story to someone you trust and you need to be believed and have that story, you know, taken at, at the full, you know, weight of, of kind of emotional trauma and violence that you experienced, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it breaks my heart, right, imagining a 
of, of you know, a male kind of reporting an act of violence and being, you know, laughed at or, um, you know, or, or people assuming that, you know, it, it doesn't happen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Educators, though, that point about educators is interesting. It, it's a really good point. And, mm. and I mean, I, I think that we do, you know, I mean, this is something, you know, to, to be taught. And, and I think that as... You know, to, to kind of go back to, to ways we might, you know, in, in addition to the myriad, you know, array of ways I feel like we're, we're failing our, our daughters, you know, in, in the ways that we're failing our sons as well. I, I feel like when, when they're children, when they're very young, you know, we do have these conversations with them about avoiding predators, you know, that that comes naturally to us. I feel like when they reach an age, you know, of, of kind of sexual agency, that conversation mm. drops off, you know, and, and I don't know how, I don't know, you know, I, I don't think that in school it's discussed, mm. right? Um, you know, but maybe it should be. It's you know, shifting, and maybe I think. I think the nature be. of consent is, mm-hmm. although if you talk to teens about what they're copying in sex ed, it's really not... <laughs> about the stuff they want to know about, mm-hmm. like questions of consent and mm-hmm. how you negotiate that. And mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I'll just move this. Thanks for that. Um, I wanted to know, because of the um, accessibility of internet pornography, mm-hmm. men and women and boys and girls, more younger and younger, mm-hmm. seem to be being sexually educated through that medium. Mm. And I was just wondering, because of the recent uprise in rape culture mm-hmm. that seems to be just amplifying more and more, especially in the music industry, mm-hmm. do you believe that these issues can go kind of hand in hand as a generations move forward, understanding sexual, having a sexual being as, you know, being objectified? Mm. Or do you think these are just secular issues within women and men? Mm. You know, I mean, I think that it, it just has to be, you know, a, a conversation that, that we begin at, at sort of the... Um, you know, the youngest of ages, you know, and I have a 16 month old and, you know, I mean, I've thought a lot about, you know, sort of like, what do I tell her, you know, about, about like a Nicki Minaj video, you know, and how do I sort of, you know, balance and, and rectify these parts of my brain, you know, of, of me really wanting, you know, for her as an individual to be able to wear whatever she wants, you know, or to be able to express and channel her sexuality, you know, through, you know, dressing provocatively, you know, or, or you know, writing sort of provocative lyrics, you know, and, and then on the other hand, right, sort of like really wanting her safety, understanding the contextual environment, right, and sort of the social messages and stigma, you know, that, that's going to come with that and, and mm. sort of the unequal, you know, playing field um, of, of misogyny. You know, I, I think really, you know, I, I'm going to begin with, you know, for now I want you to to notice, right, the way that she's acting and how it's different, right, from the way that he's acting and what she's wearing and and how it's different from what he's wearing, right? I I think that at the youngest age, I I do want, you know, to to sort of Mm. say, begin to notice. Right, um, but but it 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 terrifies me, and and the way that we ask young women to be responsible, right, um, for for preventing their own rape, right, um, and and how loud that conversation is compared to you know 
talking to boys about not raping um, is, is, you know, pretty fascinating and, and a dynamic that radically needs to shift. Mm. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, thanks. I'm going to actually take a few questions at a go, if that's okay, just sure. so we can get as many of mm -hmm. you. Sure. Thank you. Um, just had a quick question. You started out the beginning of the show with the myth of female passivity. Mm. What about um, your opinions on the opposite and what men or boys might go through if they feel that they want to be a bit more passive or they mm -hmm. feel that a woman is being aggressive sexually with them mm -hmm. or in any manner mm -hmm. and they want the passive approach and they're mm -hmm. not, they don't want to have sex or they don't mm -hmm. want to encourage the behavior from the female, is mm -hmm. that more of a sense of shame? And you think that's probably why there's not a lot of counts of boys coming forward mm -hmm. with these um, occurrences? That's a great mm -hmm. question. Thank mm -hmm. you. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. um, we'll grab another one on this side. Thanks. Um, are you familiar with the dating app Tinder? Yeah, vaguely, yeah. Okay. Um, well, for most, it's an infamous hookup tool for men. Ah. But I think quietly women are using it for the same purpose as well. Ah. What do you think of the app, of the app itself and online dating space? Okay. Yeah, good question. We'll come back to that. So, you know, women using the internet to mm -hmm. hook up in the way that men might have traditionally done. Yep, we'll come mm -hmm. back to that. Great question. I'll grab one more on this side. Thanks. Um, I was just wondering your thoughts about um, sort of... Could it be that this almost more kind or less judgmental approach that we give women as perpetrators compared to men could come not only from the weird boner factor, mm -hmm. but actually because women may find a relief or even an empowerment of the idea that there's finally a woman who is taking control of her sexual fantasies and finally a woman that is kind of being the taker in the situation? And just your thoughts on that. Mm. Mm. Let's consider that one. Sure, yep. sure. Um, yeah, to, to speak to that, I, I guess sort of my, um, my reservation with that is, is that I don't see them as being portrayed as like sort of strong, active women, right? I see them kind of, you know, in this sort of like weepy, I'm so sorry, you know, I had all these bad things happen to me, you know, please forgive me, right? Sort of thing. So, um, you know, I mean, on... So, so yeah, I, I guess I, I don't see them as sort of being looked at as you know, uh, being in charge of their sexuality. I, I see, especially in the reporting, that charge actually being given to the underage male, which is um, pretty incredible. The question about males or boys uh, and, and their feelings of passivity mm -hmm. and whether, how they negotiate mm -hmm. um, if someone wants sex and they don't want sex. Yeah, no, that's Consent. such a great question. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, that, that sort of goes back to the ways that, you know, this sort of you know, binary sexist system doesn't just punish women, you know? I mean, I, I, think, I think, you know, men and boys feel this immense, you know, sort of cultural pressure to prove their masculinity, right? And unfortunately, one of our, you know, one of the main ways our culture offers up, you know, that you're able to prove this masculinity, you know, is, is kind of by, you know, hooking up with girls or, you know, even maybe, you know, treating girls as a certain way that's... Mm. Um, that's not the most respectful. Yeah, yeah it's hard, very hard. Um, I might just grab a couple more. We've, we're about to run out of time, so if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually wrote uh, my thesis. Just, just come a bit closer oh, if you yeah. can. I wrote a thesis uh, on a similar topic, kind mm -hmm. of bringing forth, grappling with the idea of an affirmative female sexual desire. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really interesting the way that you went about it to highlight kind of the predatoriness. Mm -hmm. um, it was something I hadn't thought about going that avenue. Mm -hmm. But kind of talking about your writing and um, 
the language that you are using to describe this kind mm -hmm. of affirmative femaleness, mm -hmm. female sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that the language exists to kind of describe an affirmative female mm -hmm. sexual identity that doesn't, kind of like you were saying, doesn't mm -hmm. involve on this kind of predatory or, mm -hmm. um, yeah, virginal, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. wafty or yeah. slutty kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, so. yeah, great question. We'll come, we'll come mm -hmm. to that. And let's get one more from you. You, you, don't have, you don't want to ask it? Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been standing there for so long, you sure? I won't hear. Oh, he's not sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Now's your chance to have a voice. <laughs> I thought you were being very patient. Um, <laughs> the, the, yes, very briefly, because we actually have run out of time. It's a very quick question. I'll get into trouble. Um, Whenever I came to this, um, I was really curious about the way that women might be sexual predators. But when I got here, I heard more about man bashing than I did about actually listening to the way that women are sexual predators. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Can you just say one more sentence to explain that a bit more clearly? <laughs> okay, so... Yeah, I came in here fully wanting to work out the ways in which women could be sexual predators, right? Thinking I might even display those tendencies. But when I got here, well... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if hey, this is that in, panel, in but... Some ways, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, just, you know. But um, when I got here, it sounded a lot more like man bashing and, and that sort of thing. Oh. I was just, I was really a little bit like... Okay. I thought thank I came you. here looking for something else. Okay, thank you. We might not have met your needs today, but um, mm. we've covered a lot of complex terrain, so I'm sorry there wasn't, it wasn't but thank you. <laughs> so let's come to the question of the language existing. Is there the language that exists to describe an affirmative female sexuality? And then we have to finish, I think, yep. Yeah, no, um, and also hookup culture, which is kind of linked, I think. No, very, very much so. You know, and 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 I think that that again goes back to the sort of chicken egg of you know a, a tree falling in a forest, right, with no one around to hear it. Uh, you know, when when sort of the ears of the culture are programmed not to hear that language, right, in that affirmative way, but to hear that language either, you know, in in sort of like a a very safe way, you know, or or an obscene way that's not sort of permitted, you know, for for women to use, or in in kind of a, a flowery, you know, romantic way that's discarded. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I think sort of it's more about attuning, right, our, our sort of social ears to receive that language and, and kind of hear and acknowledge female sexuality as independent and powerful. Well, I think Alyssa has given us such an interesting, nuanced, complex appraisal uh, of what led you to write your book, Tampa. And mm, thank I thank you so much for mm. that. Can you do the same? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.